Hello, Duncan Green here. It's a lovely summer's day. I've just got back from the outdoor pool. Um, I've just had a hot buttered crumpet and a cup of tea. English summer, it's cloudy, no sign of sun. Um, having a great time, living the life. Uh, and I'll catch you up now with the posts on From Poverty to Power this week. So we started off with, oh no, before I do that, let me just remind you that I'm now on LinkedIn or the, the blog is now on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a From Poverty to Power page. We're up to 250 followers, which is not bad. And the more followers there are, the more it pays. it's worth me spending time on LinkedIn and you know getting to know that new platform. I've never used it, never replied to connections. Don't know why people do it. So um, I need to learn. Uh, so do please follow on LinkedIn um, if you if you are on that platform. Right, links I liked. First one of the uh, of the week. Andrew Mitchell. So he used to be not my favourite person, I have to say. But in his second incarnation as Britain's development minister at this new merged ministry, the FCDO, he is really kicking ass. How about this one? One thing I learned in the city is that there's no such thing as a merger. One side wins and one side loses. Meeting different old diffid officials when I came back, came back was like meeting people coming out of the rubble from a nuclear blast. This guy's a minister, a government minister, slagging off this big decision to merge the Development and Foreign Office, Development Ministry and Foreign Office. Uh, respect Andrew Mitchell, uh, and he's doing some really interesting stuff in terms of he seems to have got the budget turned around. It'll start increasing, though not to the levels before the Tories decided to you know chop it. Um, he's doing good stuff. The other thing I'll pick out from links I liked is a. Um, a lovely blog um, that manages to mention both the confusing rocket frog and the long-nosed harlequin all in a piece on rights and social justice in Ecuador. Confusing rocket frog. What a great name for an animal. Right, much more serious next day. School children are bearing the brunt of the global hunger crisis, so just feed them. And this was a guest post by Kevin Watkins, who I've known going back decades. Um, he's now also at the LSE as a professor in practice, but basically freelances around the place doing really interesting research on important topics. Uh, and he's got a new paper out on, on school meals and he asked to come on the blog and introduce it. Governments will this week gather in Rome for a UN event with one of those titles designed to induce profound boredom. The FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, is marking the second anniversary of the 2021 World Food System Summit with a stock-taking moment. Yes, I know those two words feel like a good enough reason to stop reading right now, but bear with me. As the saying goes, we are what we eat, and our food systems, the way we produce, market, and consume food, are making our world undernourished, unhealthy, and unsustainable. The report card tells its own story. Around 735 million people are now living with hunger. On current trends, malnutrition levels in 2030 the international target date for zero hunger will be the same as they were in 2015 when the target was adopted. Intensive agriculture is raising farm yields but wreaking environmental havoc, fueling biodiversity loss and contributing one third of the greenhouse gas emissions driving us to climate catastrophe. Then there's humanity's weight problem. As the world converges on the high-fat, ultra-processed diets, marketed by an increasingly reckless global food industry, an epidemic of poor diets, obesity and overweight 
now kills one in five adults more than tobacco. This is not a time for taking stock at soporific intergovernmental gatherings. It's a time for change. The UN's Deputy Secretary General, Amina Mohammed, has called for urgent action at scale. The danger is that the Rome event, much like the food system event uh, itself, will turn into a talk shop that delivers yet another communique that is long on principles but short on bold practical initiatives. One way to avoid that outcome would be to take an old policy idea and make it a new force for the transformation of food systems, the provision of school meals. Children are the hidden victims of our food system failures. Take the case of undernutrition. The international monitoring of child nutrition focuses overwhelmingly on the under five age group and the crucial first thousand days of life. But what about the rest of childhood? The crucial growth spurts that happen during adolescence and the transition to adulthood. In a background paper prepared for the stock take, we provide new estimates for undernutrition among school-aged children. Applying regional malnutrition rates to UN age cohort data, some 284 million children of primary and secondary school age are going hungry. Around half live in Africa, a share that is rising rapidly, but progress has stalled in South Asia and is in reverse gear in Latin America. No region is immune. It's not just that the, poor, the poorest countries that are affected. As the cost of living crisis intensifies across Europe, in the UK, the Food Foundation found that a quarter of households were affected by food insecurity in late 2022, three times the level pre-pandemic. Some four million children were living in those households. It doesn't take a UN summit to work out the consequences under, under nutrition for education. Just ask any parent or teacher. Hunger and learning are not good bedfellows. Moreover, the poverty behind poor nutrition puts children, especially adolescent girls, at risk of being pulled out of school and into labour markets. If you want a vehicle for reaching undernourished children and unlocking lost learning potential, school meals are a good bet. One big advantage is that they already exist. They're among the world's most extensive safety nets and safety nets can be rapidly expanded. School meal programmes have a proven track record, not just in delivering decent food and improving school attendance, but in improving learning outcomes. Ghana's school feeding programme raised learning levels with the poorest children registering the biggest gains. The gains can cross generational boundaries. In India, home to the world's largest school meal scheme, the children of mothers who received meals are less likely to be stunted and more likely to have better health. Well-designed school meal programmes are also part of the policy toolkit for tackling the public health programmes associated with food system failures. Children are also on the front line of the global obesity crisis. One in three of Latin America's children are now overweight or obese. Numbers are also rising in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. These children face elevated prospects of obesity in adulthood along with the associated health risks. Providing children with tasty, healthy and nutritious foods at school can help cultivate consumption preferences for low-fat, low-sodium foods, including fresh fruit and veg. And changing adolescent diets today is one way of changing the food markets of the future. <coughs> Excuse me. That's why countries across Latin America <coughs> are following the examples of Finland, France and others who have made school meals an integral part of the public health policy. Of course, school meals are not a standalone strategy. Multinational food corporations like to pitch up at UN summits 
and expressed their undying commitment to public health and all things SDG. But their formidable advertising and marketing capabilities are directed towards hooking children on products that will harm their health, notably high-fat, ultra-processed food. That's why school meals need to be part of a wider response, including taxes on sugars, tighter labelling laws and restrictions on advertising that put public health before corporate profit. While school meal provision may represent a financial drop in a multi-trillion dollar food market ocean, it provides a powerful tool for change. Governments and municipal authorities can use the power of procurement to signal public policy priorities. In Brazil, where every child in a public school receives a free meal, one third of the budget is reserved for smallholder farmers. Municipalities like Sao Paulo, the largest in the country, is gearing school meal procurement towards low-carbon regenerative agriculture. If you're looking for an inspiring vision for the food system of the future and a case study in effective advocacy, check out the website of Brazil's Comida do Amanhã Institute. What is happening in Brazil is part of a wider story. Across the world, school meal programs are nudging their way into the mainstream of public policy reforms linking food justice to public health and climate justice. You can see that nudge in the EU's farm to fork strategy and the Biden administration's American Families Plan. You can see it in the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, an agreement linking over 100 municipalities working to reshape food systems. The problem is that the school feeding safety net is weakest where it needs to be strongest, namely in the countries and communities hit hardest by rising malnutrition. Fewer than one in five children in the world's poorest countries currently have access. In Africa, where under a quarter of children are covered, the combination of double-digit food price inflation, rising debt and shrinking tax revenues threatens to erode already inadequate provision. Countries at the sharp end of the nutrition crisis should be a first priority. Momentum is building. The new Kenyan government has set out plans for universal provision by 2030. Rwanda is already nearing that target. Countries like Bangladesh and Nepal have also set ambitious goals. The impetus for change, along with the bulk of the financing, has not come from aid donors, but from developing country governments gathered in the Global School Meals Coalition. What would it take to build on these and many other initiatives to build a global force for change? The answer to that question is more finance. Research carried out for the School Meals Consortium estimates that it would take around 5.8 billion a year to reach an additional 73 million of the world's poorest children. Around 2 billion would have to come from aid for the poorest countries and the rest from governments. As the fiscal space available to governments shrinks, that may look like a tall order, but it is within reach. Increased taxes are never popular, but linked directly to a cause enjoying widespread public support, they can be more palatable. India uses earmarked taxes to fund its school meal programs. In Bolivia, a universal school meals program is financed by a small tax on hydrocarbon exports. Countries like Senegal, Tanzania and Mozambique, with the prospect of windfall gains from natural gas exports, could follow that example. International cooperation, i.e. aid, could also play a critical role. Current levels of aid for school meals are desperately low, typically around 220 million a year, or less than 1% of overall aid flows, and poorly coordinated. So financing the School Meals Coalition Plan would cost Less than two billion a dollar, two billion dollars. Hold on, that's wrong. I'll have to check that. Anyway, financing the school meals coalition plan would co would cost 
less than the $2 billion now directed to their farm subsidies. This is the EU and the US. Innovative approaches to debt relief offer another avenue. With over 20 countries in Africa either in, at, in or at risk of debt distress, payments to creditors are crowding out vital public spending. Debt for school meal swaps, modelled on approaches that are now commonplace for environmental investments, could convert unpayable debts into alleviating hunger and unlocking learning opportunities for millions of children. Transforming food systems is a complex undertaking. This is a territory marked by powerful vested interests, partisan politics and divided opinion. By contrast, tackling hunger among school kids cuts across political divides. It takes political leadership, not rocket science. So that was very long. One of the problems with Kevin's posts is he writes really, really well and he writes long. And I really struggle to cut them when he sends them to me. And it was the same with this one. But there we go. It was very good. It is very good. Please read it. Next post by Oxfam's Anthony Commande. How the United Nations and the World Bank can turbocharge the effort to reduce inequality. Over the past decade, many leading economists and global institutions, such as the United Nations, the IMF and the World Bank, have taken a keen interest in economic inequality. Tons of data have been unearthed and inequality is now on ordinary people's lips. Indeed, in 2015, the UN adopted inequality as part one of its sustainable development goals. The World Bank has been working on inequality through its twin goal on poverty and shared prosperity for the past 10 years. The IMF has produced several groundbreaking publications. Yet that hasn't dented economic inequality in many parts of the world. The UN Secretary General has reported that inequality is one of the SDGs that have recorded the least improvement. The richest 10% of the global population now gobbles up 52% of global income, while the poorest 50% take home a meagre 8.5%. That should concern us all. It will be impossible to end poverty, protect our planet from climate catastrophe, and meaningfully improve the social economic well-being of everyone without urgent and decisive action on inequality. No surprise then that people are increasingly demanding that their governments, multilateral institutions and the UN address it. Just last week, I was involved in coordinating an open letter from leading world economists and other world leaders. The letter was addressed to the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and the World Bank President, Ajay Banga. It was encouraging to see five former World Bank chief economists, the former UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, and leading economists such as Thomas Piketty, join more than 230 global economists and others in urging both the UN and the World Bank to support urgent action to reduce widening inequality and adopt better metrics for measuring it. This is where we go into geek mode here. The letter seized on two critical but unrelated processes at the UN and the World Bank. In September, the UN will undertake midterm reviews of the SDGs. For its part, the World Bank is currently aligning its mission to better respond to a set of increasingly global challenges. This is a crucial moment to strengthen SDG 10 of the UN and enable the World Bank to truly combat inequality. Shared prosperity is the current measure of income inequality in SDG 10 and is what the World Bank has been using. Shared prosperity measures the income or consumption growth of the bottom 40% compared to the whole population. It is positive if the income of the bottom 40% increases at a faster rate than the entire population. But this indicator was a compromise and it falls short of being a true inequality measure. 
it doesn't really measure inequality, but income growth for the bottom 40%. Income or wealth changes occur predominantly at the top and the bottom of the distribution. The share of the middle half is always roughly a half. If you are interested in examining the evolution of inequality, you should pay keen attention to both tails, the top 10% and the bottom 40%. Shared prosperity is still useful, but it needs to be augmented with true inequality measures. And uh, Anthony suggests two. The Gini index is the most widely used measure of inequality. It decomposes everything into a single number, but says nothing about the distribution at the top and the bottom. What's really interesting is the, is, is the Palmer, Palmer ratio devised by the Chilean economist Gabriel Palmer. The Palmer ratio compares the income of the top 10% to that of the bottom 40%. The simplicity of the Palmer measurements makes life easier for all of us and places it ahead of the pack. I can clearly remember explaining it to my mother in her rural village who had never got past primary school. My member of parliament would get it. For the technocrats at the parliamentary budget office, I merely need to mention the Palmer ratio and they get the point. No indicator of inequality is perfect. The Palmer ratio has its shortcomings, but it is both the UN SDG 10 and the World Bank need to adopt it and the Gini as additional official, official measurements of inequality on top of the shared prosperity indicator. Correctly measuring inequality will not bring inequality down on its own, of course. That requires political commitment. Then countries, the World Bank and the IMF can make use of the data to assess the likely implication of economic, social and environmental policies on inequality. So the inequality discussion does get very database, very numerical, very geeky. But I think that's, uh, that was a very good summary from Anthony Commande. Next post and the last for the week. Evaluating the evaluations, what lessons can Oxfam draw from a decade of scrutiny? Propaganda and opinion are easy, establishing the truth is hard. And I speak here, this is me speaking in my voice, I speak here as someone once branded Oxfam's chief opinionator. Thanks, John McGrath. Oxfam has been wrestling with different ways to evaluate impact for decades. And in a new paper, a team led by Katrina Barnes ploughed through 67 effectiveness reviews rigorous impact evaluations on randomly selected samples of Oxfam's projects around the world to see what we've learned along the way. Lots to chew over there. Now I'll give a link to the full paper. The two sections that stood out for me were on valuing women's work and climate justice. Some extracts on valuing women's work. We evaluated 36 projects that were tackling issues related to women's work with communities in Africa and Asia. These projects sought one of two main outcomes either increasing women's economic status or increasing various other dimensions of women's empowerment, such as personal, relational, um, control over resources, environmental, uh, and some projects sought primarily to influence government policies on women's empowerment. What were the findings? 80% of projects pursuing broader dimensions of women's empowerment were found to have a lasting positive impact. But when looking at projects focusing solely on women's economic status, we were less successful. Only 45% of projects. What did we learn? Women involved in Oxfam projects developed skills, such as agricultural business know-how, to support their earning capacity. In most projects, these skills enable greater production and increase in paid work and access to markets and credit. However, 
Frequently, this did not result in increased household income, which is what we'd expected. Community attitudes and narratives about women's roles, along with government or customary policies, were cited as key reasons why we did not see the intended impact. These societal barriers affect all aspects of women's work, including the crops they grow, the industries in which they work, their hours of work, their profits, and how dignified, sustainable and reliable their employment is. Addressing these systemic societal barriers that devalue women's economic contributions are areas in which we're seeing strong success, with over two-thirds of the projects tackling such barriers showing positive impacts. We see particularly strong changes around women's own beliefs and attitudes, for example in joining community groups, taking leadership positions and raising community awareness about care work and their rights around land ownership. And the second aspect was climate justice. Our climate justice work so far has focused on building individual and community resilience. We evaluated 28 of these projects, most in rural settings in Africa and Asia. Findings. The evaluations revealed that Oxfam's climate related work has evolved over the past decade. We have moved away from focusing on diversifying livelihoods and towards strategies that focus on bringing community members together in groups to engage in collective action and push for change to climate policies and financing. All projects that focused on achieving climate policy change had a positive impact. Our work which sought to build community or individual resili resilience was also successful, with 85% of projects leading to people being better able to cope with shocks and stresses. However, projects that sought to increase household income or wealth remained a challenge with only 30% of those projects having long-term impact. What did we learn? One approach to climate justice is to support sustainable and climate resilient livelihoods. We worked with people to improve skills, alter practices, access credit or diversify, diversify crops. However, similar to the findings undervaluing women's work, we found that whilst this led to increased skills and in half of the projects led to diversified incomes, or greater production, it was insufficient to consistently increase household income. This suggests that overall focusing efforts on community resilience had a greater impact than a focus on individual households. Projects that aimed to raise awareness were successful when targeting policymakers, but we saw less change in communities, possibly as many communities are already very conscious of climate change and have developed their own adaptation strategies. Work supporting coalitions, networks and alliances to influence national governments was also largely successful. Many project teams noted that providing support to these networks made the most significant contribution towards achieving project objectives. Most projects had a duration between three and five years, yet many evaluations highlight that to achieve resilience and change climate policy, longer time spans are necessary. We're therefore working with others to advocate for and pilot longer-term funding approaches. Looking to the future, building on these evaluation findings, we will no longer focus on increasing incomes at a household level, but instead focus on working with partners and communities on systemic solutions. The systems that govern people's land, agriculture, food and energy are all integral to how communities adapt. We will work with leaders from the Global South to influence these systems to become more equitable for all. And then finally, Katrina reflects on how this kind of work is changing the way we think about Oxfam's role. Two fundamental changes in our understanding of impact have led us to again evolve and create a new learning and accountability framework. These are one, 
Who defines what should be measured? Defining success and measuring impact has historically been controlled by organisations based in the global north rather than by those who experience the changes we are seeking. By focusing on Western understandings of outcomes and ways of knowing, we have not adequately centred communities or in-country partners to decide what changes are meaningful to measure. Nor have we done enough to ensure that this learning is owned and used by the people closest to the changes. Two, addressing root causes by working on systems change. Sustained change is complex, occurring through the interactions of many actors. Assessing the impact of individual projects fails to capture systemic changes. At Oxfam, we are investing in impact through broad, dynamic portfolios of national and global initiatives. Our approach to learning is therefore moving from examining standalone projects to one that looks for signs that systems are changing. And my final thought is these changes of direction seem right and admirable, but they aren't going to make the job of measuring impact and learning from it any easier. So uh, I look forward to seeing how far we get with those kind of very, really quite brave changes of direction. Okay, uh, that's enough from me. I'm off to start my weekend. Have a great weekend yourselves and talk next week. Bye.